Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we are going to cover a topic that I recently wrote about for the website, which is common questions related to incapacity and quote-unquote incompetence. In other words, these are questions that come up if we find ourselves wondering whether an older person can or should be making certain types of decisions. Now, it is, of course, really common for family members or others to become concerned about an older person's decisions. And some of the more common dilemmas that come up include the question of whether an older person should continue to drive or whether they should be spending money in a certain way or whether they should continue to live at home alone and so forth. And in many, although not all, of these cases, there's already been some other reason for concern about the older person's memory or thinking abilities. And there may or may not yet have been some kind of medical evaluation or even a diagnosis related to these concerns. Regardless of the specifics of the situation, if you've been concerned about an older person's decisions or ability to make decisions, then you probably have wondered if you should intervene or if you can intervene or under what conditions you should intervene, and so forth. And by the way, if you haven't yet found yourself in this situation, I'm sorry to say that it's probably just a matter of time until you will, because if it's not your older parents, then it'll be somebody else you know, such as another older relative, or a friend, or an older neighbor, or possibly even your spouse. So these kinds of concerns are certainly among the most common type of concern that I see stumping families. And they're not easy to address, but they can be made a little easier to address. And one key step in doing this is to learn more about something called decision-making capacity and how it can be assessed. This is also known as decisional capacity, and it's sometimes referred to as quote-unquote competence. And it's such an important issue that recently, when the American Bar Association publish a list of 10 legal tips for family caregivers, they put understand decisional capacity as their tip number one. Now, unfortunately, although this legal tip sheet is a great resource and has links to many excellent resources to help implement the tips, for their tip number one, they actually didn't provide a link to anything to help family caregivers address decisional capacity or understand decisional capacity. And that's probably because no good resource for the lay public exists. I say this because I've looked for one in the past repeatedly. I've often looked over the past few years. And so far, all I've found are some quite technical resources written for professionals and academics, some of which are very good. There are links in the related article, and I'll share some links in the show notes. But they are really detailed, really technical, and written for people who are either in the legal professions or healthcare professions or psychology, and they are quite technical. So it seems to me that we need other resources to help regular people understand this important issue. And even though I'm not a lawyer, 
I decided to publish uh, recently an article on this topic for families and older adults because I have had to learn a fair bit about this in the course of my own work. And of course, um, many doctors will be asked at some point to weigh in on whether an older person can or should be making certain decisions. So as I want you to have an opportunity to learn at least some of the basics related to decisional capacity in older adults, we're going to cover this in the podcast today. And here's what I'm going to cover in particular. First, I'm going to cover seven frequently asked questions that often come up when these issues come up. And they are these. One, what does the term capacity mean when it comes to decision-making? Two, what is the difference between incapacity and incompetence? Three, how is capacity determined? Four, is it a quote-unquote legal decision whether someone has decision-making capacity? Five, do I have to have a legal or clinical determination of incapacity for a specific decision before I override the decision of an older person with dementia? Six, do I need a clinical or legal determination of incapacity before I take the car keys away from an older parent who has dementia or otherwise appears to be an unsafe driver? And then seven, is neuropsychological testing required to assess decision-making capacity? So I'm gonna cover the answers to those seven questions. And then in the very last part of the episode, I'll share some additional suggestions on what to do if you're worried that an older person is making bad decisions or is otherwise possibly becoming quote-unquote incompetent, as I often hear people say. So let's start with question number one. What does the term capacity mean when it comes to decision-making? So let's say you tell me that your 87-year-old Aunt Mary has been falling repeatedly, but she refuses to go see a doctor. In this case, I might often start by considering whether she has the capacity to decide whether or not she needs to see the doctor. And it's especially vital to do this if Mary has been showing any other signs of memory or thinking problems, or if she's been diagnosed with a dementia such as Alzheimer's. Essentially, when we ask ourselves whether a person has the capacity to make a given decision, we're asking whether they have the mental abilities necessary to make the decision, and also whether they can show that to us. So generally, capacity requires that individuals be able to understand at least three things. One is they need to understand the situation that they're in or the situation at hand. Two, they need to understand the decision in question. And three, they need to understand the consequences of making a given choice. And they should be able to explain their reasoning. They should be able to express the choice to others. And that reasoning shouldn't rely on anything that would strike most people as uh, bizarre or delusional or excessively paranoid. Now, generally, we assume that adults have decisional capacity. That's part of being treated as an adult. But of course, as people get older, it becomes more and more common for them to develop conditions that might affect that decision-making capacity. So one of the things that people sometimes have difficulty understanding is that different types of decisions require different types of mental abilities. So decision-making capacity is not really an all-or-nothing thing, and it doesn't apply to all decisions. Experts have actually defined six civil capacities that are of particular importance to older adults, and they are one, medical consent capacity, 
Two, financial capacity, which means the capacity to manage your financial affairs. Three, testamentary capacity, which means your capacity to write or complete or approve of a will. Four, sexual consent capacity. Five, capacity to drive. And then six, capacity to live independently. If you want to learn more about these six capacities, they're explained in detail in this series of handbooks that were written as part of a partnership between the American Bar Association and the American Psychological Association. These handbooks are available for free on the internet. They're quite long PDF documents, but they are a great resource if you want to understand these six civil capacities in greater detail. Now, generally, capacity is covered by state law, although there have been efforts to try to coordinate the states on how we define capacity and incapacity, and especially on criteria related to guardianship. But for now, legal standards for capacity are determined by state law, so the specific requirements for whether or not you have capacity and how capacity is defined will depend somewhat on which state you're in and the type of capacity in question. Now, coming back to this issue of decisional capacity not being an all-or-nothing thing, there are two additional points that you should understand about decisional capacity. One is that capacity is decision-specific. So previously, I sort of mentioned six types of civil capacities that are important, but even within those six types, when we consider capacity, unless somebody has already been legally deemed to lack capacity to manage certain kinds of decisions— And we'll talk a little bit more about what that involves uh, later in the episode. Generally, capacity is supposed to be evaluated in light of a specific decision to be made. So if somebody asks me, does this person have capacity? Normally, I would say to decide what. And it's very important to get down to the what. And the reason for this is that some decisions are complex and require a person to consider and weigh multiple pieces of information, and others are much simpler. So even within the category of financial decisions. It might be fairly simple and straightforward to decide whether or not to spend $5 for an ice cream cone. And it's a much more complicated proposition to decide whether or not to sell one's house because the sale of a house is a much larger transaction, a more complicated transaction, one that often has uh, tax consequences and can have consequences for long-term care planning and so forth. So some decisions are complicated Some decisions are straightforward, and it's quite possible for people to retain the capacity to manage simpler decisions and not have the capacity for decisions that are much more complex or may have much higher stakes. So you always want to come back to the question of capacity to decide which decision, and we are often supposed to evaluate capacity for a specific decision. The second thing to keep in mind is that capacity can and does fluctuate depending on the person's health circumstances and how they're feeling at a given time. So again, capacity is not all or nothing in part because it is somewhat dynamic and can be changing. So as an example, after surgery, most people are drowsy. They're drowsy because the anesthesia is wearing off or they might be confused because they're experiencing a little bit of delirium after surgery. So in this state, most of them are lacking the capacity to address anything more than a pretty simple decision. But normally, their mental abilities improve as they recover from the surgery, and so they 
go back to whatever level of broad level of decisional capacity that they had before. So that's an example of somebody uh, experiencing a decrease in their decisional capacity related to a surgery. But actually, some people experience ups and downs in their capacity just because of the nature of their health condition and the state of their brains. It's especially common for people with vulnerable brains, such as people with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or another dementia, to experience such fluctuations in capacity. And so when they're feeling well and they're at their best, their mental abilities might be good enough for them to have the capacity to make lots of decisions. But when they become sick or stressed or anxious or delirious or for whatever reason aren't thinking at their best, their capacity to make decisions can be reduced, sometimes drastically so. And I have seen some older adults who normally are just a little bit impaired in terms of their memory and thinking skills, but once they get sick, they just dramatically decline. And then they'll get better once they're better. So this can be a challenge for those of us around them because it can be a little bit tricky to figure out at a given moment what their capacities are. And also because even though capacity is not all or nothing and is changing, we're more comfortable sort of knowing what to do. And so that kind of um, change in situation can be challenging for all of us, but it's important to be aware of it because our goal should be to allow people as much autonomy and independence as is possible. Because of all this, before you conclude that a person permanently lacks capacity to make a given decision or to do a certain thing, you really wanna make every effort to improve their capacity if at all possible. And such improvements are sometimes possible by treating underlying medical conditions. But you also don't want to forget to address any underlying hearing loss or vision loss, because that can also make a difference for older adults. So now, frequently asked question number two. What is the difference between incapacity and incompetence? So you might hear both terms, and there are sort of historic reasons for this. Part of this reflects the fact that capacity is often considered from two perspectives. One of them is a clinical perspective, which means by doctors and psychologists and others with a clinical background. And then the other is with a legal perspective, which means capacity as considered by attorneys, judges, and the courts. Historically, the term competence was used in legal settings, and the term capacity was used in clinical settings. So first of all, as doctors, we would ask ourselves, does this patient have the capacity to agree to surgery or make this medical decision right now in this moment? And we, are, um, we do usually get training in assessing that just for the purpose of do they have the ability to consent to what's going on medically right now. But then competence was something that was determined in court by a judge, and that was often informed by a clinical assessment of capacity but finalized by the legal system. So even today, many clinicians will say that they cannot assess someone's competence, that that's for judges and courts to do, and that all they do is assess capacity, especially as regards a given decision or a sort of given ability to do some kind of life function like manage driving or finances. However, it turns out that our sort of language around capacity and competence has been evolving, and most states have been moving away from a global legal determination that a person is incompetent. So this is what used to happen is that people would be taken to court and evidence would be shown that they had lacked capacity for a variety of things, and then they were just labeled incompetent, and they lost the right to manage almost everything and were given a guardian or a conservator. 
So now that we have a more nuanced understanding of decision capacity, states are sort of moving towards having determinations of incapacity for certain types of decision. The idea being that that you allow people to still retain control over making the types of decisions that they can make, and then you sort of more narrowly define which arenas they're going to need oversight or for someone else to take over. To make a long story short, the old convention of using competence for the legal arena and capacity for the clinical one is sort of falling out of favor, at least among the experts who are writing the newer articles on this subject. And so it's probably most accurate to now refer to legal capacity versus clinical capacity. And these are distinct but overlapping, and I'm going to try to explain that with the answer to the next question. So frequently asked question number three, how is capacity determined? Again, in most situations, we presume that adults have capacity, but if concerns about their decision-making capacity are raised by others, or if a professional notices anything that's cause for concern about capacity, then a process of further assessing capacity probably should be started. So on the legal side, legal professionals such as lawyers are generally required by state laws and by their professional code of conduct to conduct a preliminary assessment of a person's capacity to complete a legal task. So if an older person comes in and wants to do a will, the lawyer is supposed to consider, does this person have the capacity to complete the will? Do they understand what the document is, what the implications are of making certain choices? Can they explain their reasoning and so forth? And usually the lawyer just makes their assessment and proceeds, but if they think perhaps the person does not have capacity to address the task at hand, then they may need to take further action. Lawyers are not trained to clinically assess capacity. So if they want capacity assessed in further depth, then they will usually refer to a professional with the appropriate background. Probably the people who are best qualified are psychologists who are specialized in this. But in other cases, medical doctors or primary care doctors may be asked to weigh in on capacity as well. How exactly the capacity is assessed clinically will depend on the type of clinician who is involved and the capacity issues in question. Ideally, a capacity assessment should include a more detailed evaluation of a person's capabilities and should also include the likely medical cause for any reduction in capacity. And as a result of this evaluation, the clinician will provide a usually a written clinical opinion regarding the capacity in question, and sometimes they might state that an older person has marginal or borderline capacity for the decision in question. And then that clinical opinion can be used by legal professionals to help them complete their legal determination of capacity. So this is how it's supposed to work. In the real world, what I have often noticed is that many doctors write very brief capacity assessments that that don't really explain their reasoning and that sometimes I disagree with. So they may sort of dash off something saying Mrs. So-and-so is no longer competent to manage her affairs or no longer has capacity to manage their affairs. And, um, and actually, when I published the article on my website, somebody posted a comment saying that the problem they had had was that doctors would offer different opinions and then also that the older person was sometimes fluctuating in capacity. So 
I think in an ideal world, as doctors, we would receive better training on assessing capacity and that one of the things we would document is whether we're aware of fluctuations, whether we expect that the person is going to get better or might get better or might not. But most of us have had really no training in doing this. So I don't want to say you shouldn't ask uh, your doctor for assistance with this, but you should realize that this is an emerging area of importance with the population aging. And right now, many of us as medical doctors have not had enough training. Moving on to the next frequently asked question number four. Is it a legal decision whether someone has capacity? So in principle, capacity is a legal determination and it should be made by legal professionals. But in most states, Physicians and other clinicians are allowed to determine capacity for medical decisions, especially for the purpose of enabling a surrogate healthcare decision maker to act. So, what about capacity when it's not a question of a medical decision or allowing a surrogate healthcare decision maker to act? Well, for instance, many older adults, although not enough, but many, do have a durable general power of attorney or sometimes a trust in which it's specified that somebody else can take over or take action if the older person becomes incapacitated. And often these documents don't have a lot of information about how incapacity should be determined, but when there is information, it often says, you know, if the older person is determined to be incapacitated by two doctors or by their usual doctor or something kind of referring to the clinicians. So in this case, it is actually fairly common for family members and others to take action because there are those documents and because a doctor has said that the older person is incapacitated. And such actions often do proceed unless someone brings some kind of um, suit to contest the actions or sometimes um, they might call Adult Protective Services and that might change something. Is this legal? It's really hard to say. I think if you want to make sure you are on solid legal and ethical ground, it's best to, one, talk with the doctor and make sure that they're up to date on capacity issues and how they're assessed. And then two, it's best to consult with an attorney who has experience in elder law for your state or for the state where the older person is. So frequently asked question number five. Do I have to have a legal or clinical determination of incapacity for a specific decision before I override the decision of an older person with dementia? In principle, the answer is yes. You should seek a clinical assessment of capacity if you're concerned about a dementia such as Alzheimer's disease, and it's especially important if you believe that it's progressed to the point that a person has lost the capacity to make a certain decision. Now, always remember that just in of itself, a diagnosis of dementia does not mean a person has lost capacity for decisions because in early Alzheimer's, people usually retain the ability to make most, if not all, decisions pertaining to their lives. But Alzheimer's and other dementias do generally progress, and so it's common to reach a point at which you are, uh, might become concerned that you do need to override the person's decisions for instance, to protect their physical safety, or especially to protect their financial well-being. To do this overriding, it will partly depend on what legal documents have already been completed, such as the durable power of attorney for general affairs or the trust, but it's again safest to get a clinical determination of incapacity and also a legal determination of incapacity. 
And if you do have the legal documents, then to override the decisions of the person uh, with dementia, the agent may need to provide proof that the person has lost capacity to make certain types of decisions, because otherwise the principal, the older person, generally has the right to override their agent. That's assuming that they have a document that allows the agent to act right away, which is fairly common. Now, if a person with dementia or other loss of uh, decisional capacity has not completed a durable general power of attorney, then you're probably going to need to consult with a lawyer to determine whether that person still has the capacity to designate an agent through a power of attorney document. And if at this point they've lost that capacity, then you may need to pursue guardianship in court in order to override the person's decisions. For more information on addressing the autonomy and decision-making of people with Alzheimer's and other dementias, I highly recommend uh, a two-page document written by the Alzheimer's Association. I'll post a link to it in the show notes. It's called Ethical Issues in Alzheimer's Disease Respect for Autonomy. And they lay out a nice framework that can provide guidance to family members and others. Frequently asked question number six, do I need a legal or clinical determination of incapacity before I take the car keys away from an older parent who has dementia and is an unsafe driver? This is, again, a common uh, dilemma that comes up for families. If you're concerned about dementia and driving, you should start by making every effort to obtain a clinical assessment of capacity to drive safely. And usually the place to start is by asking the older person's doctor to weigh in. You'll also want to learn more about your state's options and requirements when it comes to reporting potentially unsafe drivers. And some states even have some guidelines set up in place for reporting people who have cognitive impairment or a diagnosis of dementia. Now, the trouble is that many families will find that the older person in question is refusing to go see a doctor or an attorney. So there are a couple of things you can do here. So one thing that people often don't realize is they think they need the older person's permission to call the doctor and report their concerns. This is actually not true at all. There are privacy laws such as HIPAA, but they actually put limits on the ability of a professional such as myself to disclose a person's private health information to others. HIPAA does not prevent individual citizens from reporting information to a doctor over an older person's objections. So I always tell people that if you're concerned, you don't have to ask the older person's permission to report it to the doctor, although it's good to not antagonize them if possible, but you may need to consider it if, if you don't have other suitable options. And then once you report it to the doctor, if they have a good relationship with the older person, they might be able to persuade them to come in for a visit. Another option you can consider is calling Adult Protective Services. They generally don't take anybody's keys away, but they can sometimes encourage or insist on further evaluation. And you can also try to enlist other people in the older person's social circle to see if it's possible to persuade the person to give up the keys. As a last resort, if you have evidence that driving poses a substantial risk of harm to the older person and to other drivers and to pedestrians, I especially worry about pedestrians, by the way, because they're really quite unprotected. It is reasonable to conclude that this risk of harm to the older person and to others outweighs the harm of taking away their keys before clinical or legal incapacity to drive is confirmed. 
such evidence might be near crashes or past crashes sometimes, combined with other evidence that a person has reached a state of moderate or worse dementia, such as often getting lost or often being confused. And of note, the Alzheimer's Association does have a position statement on driving and dementia. I recommend it. I'll link to it. But they state that, quote, driving privileges must be withheld when the individual poses a serious risk to self or others. Interventions to prevent driving in individuals who lack insight include physician oral or written recommendations, taking the keys, removing the car, changing the locks, filing down the ignition key, and revoking the license. Frequently asked question number seven, is neuropsychological testing required to assess capacity? The answer here is not necessarily, and there are a couple reasons for this. So first of all, clinicians are usually allowed to use clinical judgment in conducting their evaluations and reaching their conclusions. Uh, The good thing is that this gives clinicians a lot of flexibility. The bad thing is that they can sort of do almost whatever they want and then write um, an opinion. That said, especially if a person has a dementia that is at a moderate or severe stage, it's often possible for a generalist physician to provide evidence of a lack of capacity. And they can do this just by interviewing the person, documenting uh, responses that demonstrate a lack of needed understanding or reasoning. They can also document evidence from family members or other observers and provide evidence that the medical cause of the thinking problems is not likely to improve. So for instance... I could interview somebody with moderate dementia, and if they're not able to tell me about their financial assets, if, if I ask them, do you have a checking account, and they tell me, I'm not sure, if I say, you know, what is your income, how do you pay your expenses, and they tell me, I'm not sure, if I say, are you paying your bills, and they say, I'm not sure, maybe they say, yes, I am, but I have evidence from the family that they're not, then I can say that generally they don't seem to understand the basics that are necessary to have capacity to manage their financial affairs because they don't know what assets they have, they're not sure how expenses are being paid. And so in that case, under those circumstances, any decisions they made would be quite questionable. And this doesn't require doing a very elaborate financial assessment. And since we have a medical cause and we know that it's not going to get better, in this case, they should have had the diagnosis of dementia for quite some time. I shouldn't be asking them all these questions right after they woke up from surgery. This would be probably reasonable as an assessment for capacity. On the other hand, there are people who have cognitive problems that are much more subtle, are mild, are kind of coming and going. And so in this case, it really is helpful to do neuropsychological testing. So neuropsychological testing, usually um, one is done by a professional neuropsychologist, a psychologist who's trained in it. And two, they have a whole series of written and oral tests. It usually takes a few hours to go through for the older person that they do. So they have a lot of like very objective data and objective tests that they'll have the person do, and then they'll create an interpretation. So I usually recommend neuropsychological testing, either as a clinician, I'm unsure, or if it seems kind of borderline to me, or if the problems that the person is having are kind of subtle, or if it's a very high stakes kind of uh, issue, you know, like concerns about selling a house or or something like that. And it seems like it might help resolve a, a family disagreement, or if it seems that legal actions might be necessary. That's when it may be more helpful to consider neuropsychological testing. 
So those are the answers to uh, the seven frequently asked questions. And now let's talk about some specific things you can do if you're worried that an older person is, quote unquote, becoming incompetent or is overall losing their decision making capacities. Or actually, another angle on this is that, you know, often I have uh, families approach me and they they don't think the person is incompetent or incapacitated. They'll actually tell me she's legally competent, but they're worried about the person's decisions or actions, such as making, you know, irrational decisions or worrisome spending. So here's what I recommend you do. So first and foremost, try to be clear on what is happening and gather a little information, perhaps by talking to other people. And then try to assess the stakes and figure out how urgent it is to take action. So usually the main concerns are related to physical safety or financial safety. And sometimes also to sort of healthcare in general, like people sometimes are concerned that an older person is not taking their medication, which might have long-term health consequences. And what you want to do is think about, can anything be done right now to try to prevent major irreversible consequences while you get these capacity issues sorted out. Next, you want to start considering that question of, does this person have capacity and start working on getting help, assessing whether the person has capacity to make the decision or manage the situation that is in question. Now, like almost everything in medicine or things that I talk about on the site and on the podcast, I don't think you can do this alone. And I think you can get a head start on your own, which can be really valuable when you go and approach professionals. So I don't think any of you should be assessing capacity on your own, but you can ask yourself these sort of common sense questions. You can say, first of all, one, what is the decision in question that we're concerned about? So try again to focus it on a certain type of decision. Two, ask yourself, well, does this person seem to understand the decision and have capacity? So do they understand the situation? Do they understand the decision in question? Do they understand the consequences of having a given choice? This often requires a certain amount of insight. So do they understand the consequences of not taking their diabetes medication? If they're diabetic, you know, their blood sugar might be going up and up, especially if that's happened in the past. So they should be able to articulate the likely consequences of the choice that they're making. And they should be able to explain their reasoning, if not verbally, in writing or in another way. And it shouldn't be based on anything that's extremely weird or bizarre seeming to you. So these are things that you can start by doing on your own. And if it seems like the answers to those questions are no, they don't quite understand the situation or the consequences of making a given choice, or they seem to have sort of poor insight into their abilities or into what the consequences are likely to be, then then you can start saying, wow, you know, maybe they don't have the capacity to make this decision. And you'll want to sort of bring up those thoughts to the professional. So then you do want to get help from a professional confirming your hunch about whether they do or don't have the capacity to manage a certain type of decision Generally, I think it's best to start with the person's usual doctor, because hopefully that doctor knows the older person. But bear in mind, again, that many doctors have not been trained to assess capacity. So it's probably a good idea to ask the doctor, you know, when the doctor sort of gives you an opinion about capacity to clarify how they reach that conclusion. So if if it seems to you that your mom doesn't understand 
a situation or the consequences of a decision and then the doctor says, oh, no, she's fine. She's competent. Then you might want to sort of bring up and say, well, you know, I'm concerned that she doesn't seem to understand this and the consequence of that and doesn't have insight into that. So can you clarify to me how you reached the conclusion that she actually does have capacity to be making these decisions? And that might help the clinician rethink things a bit more. And most of all, please don't assume that an older person has capacity for a certain decision or a certain type of decision just because they haven't yet been labeled incapacitated by uh, the healthcare system or the legal system. We are often late to catch on to this. So I do see this come up, people saying, well, they haven't been legally declared incapacitated, so I can't do anything. Well, if you really have lots of evidence that they don't understand the situations or the consequences, then they may not have capacity. And then it becomes a little bit, it becomes actually much more ethically justified for you to step in and try to get assistance and consider intervening. So separate from the question of determining whether the person has capacity, it's really important to pursue further evaluation to determine what might be the cause of these difficulties in decisional capacity. So lots of people will not yet have been evaluated for memory loss or won't have been diagnosed with a condition such as Alzheimer's. But remember, don't, don't assume right away it's Alzheimer's because it might be something else that is reversible. And then even for people who do have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or another type of dementia, they still need evaluation because they may have something extra going on that's making them worse than they otherwise would be. Two, in people who do have Alzheimer's or another dementia, we want to follow along so that we notice when they reach that point, when they have lost the capacity to make certain decisions that a year or two previously they were able to make. So in most cases, some additional medical evaluation is indicated when you get worried about a person's decisions or when their ability to make decisions seems to have gone down. And then... If it does seem like the person has lost the capacity to make certain types of decisions or manage certain types of situations, but they haven't yet been uh, legally deemed to have lost capacity for those in questions, then you'll need to consider whether further action on that front might be necessary. And this partly depends on what your options are for being able to help the person at that time. So if you have a durable power of attorney, does it say that you can act right away or only when they're incapacitated? If it does say you can act right away, is the problem that your directive is going to be in conflict with the older person until you get the doctor or someone else to provide some kind of proof that they've been incapacitated and you have, um, or that they've lost capacity, I should say, make certain types of decisions um, or manage certain things. And so now you have a right to override. It will sort of depend on what kind of legal documents you have as to what your options are. And especially if they don't have a power of attorney, then you may need to go to court and petition for guardianship, which is um, usually somewhat expensive and time-consuming, and that is part of why it's better for older people to have a durable power of attorney or a trust to begin with. Ultimately, if you have concern about capacity issues and decision-making, you can try calling your local area agency on aging and see if there are local resources that might be able to answer questions. And sometimes there are low-cost legal clinics for older adults 
Otherwise, your best bet is probably to talk to an experienced attorney specialized in elder law or to talk to clinicians who have experience navigating these kinds of situations with older patients and their families. And again, if you want to learn more, the best is probably to work your way through some of the technical resources that I'm going to share in the show notes. The handbooks created by the American Bar Association and American Psychological Association are quite long, but there are some uh, shorter articles that are peer-reviewed and that are freely available that I'll, I'll post, and those might be a good place to start first. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.